Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 4. We'll be looking at Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5 this morning. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of that, uh, but we will be reading some of it. So Judges chapter 4, and we'll start with verses 1 through 4. And if you haven't read the book of Judges before, I'd encourage you to, uh, I'd encourage you to read it. Um, it's not only the Word of God, but it is a fascinating piece of literature. Um, in it, you find plot twists, you've got humor, you've got heroes and heroines, you've got irony, you've got foreshadowing, you've got a bunch of different literary elements in it. So it's a great piece of literature. And you know, in chapter 4 and 5, we have uh, an, an historical event told us to us in two different forms. In chapter 4, we'll see the narrative version of this historical event. And then in chapter 5, the events are told to us again, but through poetry and song. So it's fascinating literature. So let's begin in Judges chapter 4. We'll, be, we'll read verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly, for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, a wife, the wife of Lebedoth, was judging Israel at that time. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Space Jam. Um, I love the movie Space Jam. My friends love the movie Space Jam. And without going into all the, uh, the plots, plot line of Space Jam, it's basically uh, Michael Jordan teams up with uh, a group of Looney Tune characters to play a game of basketball to defend the Looney Tune universe against these evil aliens called the Monstars. And the Monstars had stolen all their time, or stolen all their talent and skill and size from a group of other professional uh, basketball players. But the, the Monstars were an intimidating opponent. They were big, they were tall, they were strong, they were fast, and they were really good at basketball. And the Looney Tune team, called the Tune Squad, uh, were not very big. They were not very good at basketball apart from Michael Jordan. But I remember as a kid watching Space Jam and never once believing the Toon Squad was going to lose. Never once thought that they were going to lose. And why? Because the Toon Squad had Michael Jordan. You just kind of knew that because they had Michael Jordan, they were going to win the match. They were going to win the game. And with our passage today, we see the Israelites are oppressed by a very, very strong enemy. But this enemy is no match for them. 
Not because the Israelites themselves are strong or witty. Not because of their tremendous courage. And not even because they have a mighty warrior of their own. But solely on the basis that God is on their side and God has guaranteed their victory. And our main point of today's passage, it's a long one, it is we are at war to advance the kingdom of God. And God sovereignly commands and assures our victory in this mission. So again, we are at war to advance the kingdom of God. And God sovereignly commands and assures our victory in this mission. And with this, we'll have four points. The first one is, one, a mighty enemy. Two, a sovereign God. Three, a head-crushing hero. And four, a song of victory. So one, a mighty enemy. Two, a sovereign God. Three, a head-crushing hero. And four, a song of victory. And before we look at this point, the, the first point, I'd like to pose a few questions to you. What is your role in the advancement of the kingdom of God? What is your role in the advancement of the kingdom of God? Are you an active participant? Are you a non-participant? Or maybe are you even an enemy to the advancement of the kingdom of God? So what is your role in the advancement of the kingdom of God? So let's look at the first point. A mighty enemy. Chapter 4 begins with a similar introduction that we saw last week and one we'll see this week, or this week and next week as well. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord has given them over to an enemy. And this time, this enemy is Jabin, the king of Canaan, and his commander, the commander of his army, Sisera. Jabin and Sisera oppress the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years, and the people cry out to God, and he hears them. It's in these first first. Verses that we see the strength of Israel enemies, Israel's enemy, Sisera. And Sisera will be our primary antagonist in this story. But in verse 3, we are told that Sisera commanded 900 chariots of iron. And these iron chariots would have been recent technology at this time. It would have been a huge advantage for Sisera and his army. And this would be, these would be weapons that Israel themselves did not possess. I actually believe that it's believed that these chariots were equipped with blades attached to the wheels of the chariots uh, so that they could go through the battlefield uh, ripping through their enemies. These chariots were significant weapons of warfare that aided Sisera in the oppression of the people of God. And just how bad was this oppression? Verse 3 tells us that they were not only oppressed, but that they were cruelly oppressed. And in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5, we read, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. This is not a safe place to live. They... There was no protection or system of justice to keep the people of God safe. The 
the highways were abandoned because it was too dangerous to travel. I was listening to a, uh, an interview um, with a reporter that is in Ukraine right now uh, during the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine as Russia has invaded Ukraine. And this reporter, uh, they asked him, they were like, where are you right now? And he said, I'm with a group of people. We're walking through the field uh, because we're too afraid to go on the highways because we, we think the Russians might attack uh, the highways. So just imagine uh, the danger to live the, the danger that the people of God are, are experiencing, that they can't use roads, they can't use highways because it's too dangerous. And it says that villagers cease to exist in Israel. It wasn't safe for you to live out in the open. People lived in cities with walls to protect them. It was a hard and dangerous place to live. We don't know that level of uh, insecurity. We don't know... Uh, that type of insecurity, that type of uh, warfare that, you know, you lay yourself, you go to sleep at night and not knowing what might happen uh, while you sleep. And just how bad was this Sisera that was leading this oppression? Well, he was a very evil and wicked man. We learn in verse 28, 29, and 30 of chapter 5 that uh, Sisera's mother is worried. Um, he, she's worried because her son has not came back from battle. And she's anxious over this. And her friends come to her and comfort her. And how do they comfort her? They said, you know, he's probably just out uh, robbing the enemies. There's so much wealth. He's probably just robbing them. Or maybe, actually, he's just uh, taking advantage of the enemy's women. So this is what comforts his mom. So this is how evil this man is, that she is comforted knowing that her son is probably just robbing the enemy or assaulting their women. This is a wicked enemy, but he's a mighty enemy. He's strong. He has weapons that Israel does not possess. He is a mighty enemy. But do you know that we have a mighty enemy as well. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that we have three enemies. We read in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, or by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We have three enemies. The world, our remaining sinful flesh, and finally, Satan. Satan himself. The world, John, tell, uh, Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Our sinful flesh, Paul tells us in Chapter 5 of Galatians, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then finally, the third enemy, the commander of this evil army, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the serpent of old. He is our third and mightiest enemy. We read in 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. These enemies are mighty. And we are fools if we disregard this truth. We put ourselves in spiritual danger by not recognizing the enemies that we face every day. The world seeks to influence us so subtly towards its ways and away from God. And this is not to say that we should be like the monks or be like the Amish and isolate ourselves from the world. This is not even saying that the world is evil and there's absolutely nothing good in the world. Um, you know, all men and women are created in the image of God and all men and women reflect a, the glory of God to a certain extent and that's good for us. So the world does good and we can praise, uh, praise God for that, that we have doctors and uh, we have medicine, that we have uh, good and just judges, uh, that we have uh, good things in this world. However, when I say that the world is an enemy, I mean that if we are left on our own to follow the course of the world, to follow the stream and the current of the world, we will not be led towards Christ, but we will be led away from him. Then secondly, our remaining sinful flesh seeks to stir in us old passions and desires, and sin remains in us until we are called home or Christ returns. But because of that, uh, we will struggle against our flesh for the remainder of our lives. You know, like the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And lastly, Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He seeks to rob glory from God by swaying our worship towards the creation and not our creator. He seeks worship for himself. He seeks our misery. He seeks our oppression. He seeks uh, evil for our end. And this is why we are reminded often in the New Testament to be watchful, be on guard, stand firm, be sober-minded. And why do you think God commands us to avoid drunkenness and to be sober? Is God robbing us from joy and fun? Absolutely not. He is giving us wisdom and protection. He's loving us as a good father should. Being sober-minded helps us to fight our enemies. It helps us to be on guard, whereas Drunkenness might impair our ability to resist temptation. And it's not just drunkenness in, in terms of alcohol, but also anything that, uh, that leads us to a mind that's not clear. Think about anger. We can be in fits of rage where we're not thinking or seeing clearly and we say things we don't mean or we do things that we don't mean. That is not being sober-minded. You know, think about driving. You know, if it's a clear sunny day on the highway we lean our chair back we put the radio on we roll the windows down not a care in the world uh, but what happens if we enter a busy highway or if there's snow or if it's deer season you know we put our seat up we might turn the radio down put both hands on the wheel and we're watchful because those other drivers might be out to get us or the deer might be out to get us we're on guard we're making sure that we're seeing clearly so we are protected from any danger that might come, come our way. We're on guard, clear-minded, and watchful. 
And our enemies are mighty today, just as the enemies of God's people were mighty in the days of Deborah. And Deborah, she is a unique judge of Israel during this time. First, she's a woman. That's, she's the only judge that is a woman, but she also uh, serves a dual purpose that only one other judge has. Samuel was a judge and a prophet, and Deborah as well is a judge and a uh, prophet, a prophetess. So let's look at the second point, a sovereign God. We'll read verse 4 through 8. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up for, to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abaddon, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, Gather your man at Mount Tabor. Take 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So we're introduced to this new character, Barak. Deborah, speaking from the Lord, commands Barak to gather 10,000 men and to go to battle against Sisera's 900 chariots. And Deborah assures Barak that Sisera will be defeated because the Lord will give his army into the hands of Barak. But what is Barak's response? He's afraid. He's doubtful. He's scared. See, Barak is a seasoned military general. This is not his first time with war. He knows that if he gathers his men at Mount Tabor, it leaves them as sitting ducks. If they gather on this mountain, it will be easy for Sisera to take all 900 of his chariots and surround them, uh, surround them on all, si all sides. And he knows better than what the Lord is communicating because he knows that they are absolutely dead if they go to Mount Tabor. He fears his enemy to the point that he doubts God. He unfortunately recognizes that his enemies are mighty to the, po to the point that he does not obey or trust in God. But aren't we similar to Barak in many ways? Isn't it easy for us to disobey the commands of God because of fear? We avoid gospel conversations with others because of fear. We avoid giving of our time or money or skills because of fear of losing and sacrificing our own comfort. We avoid uncomfortable conversations with our brothers and sisters to show care or concern over their sin because of our fear of how they might uh, feel towards us or how they might view us. We avoid confessing our own sins because of what might result from them because we fear how people will treat us. Fear roots deep into our hearts and it cripples us and it paralyzes us from obeying our God. And you know, there's so much that is out of our hands, but in these, these words... Uh, God gives us hope and answers for our fear. But I want to be clear. Our enemies are mighty. They are strong and mighty. But if you are a Christian here today, 
we have no reason to fear these enemies. We recognize the strength of the enemy, but we're on guard. We stand firm. We resist, but we do not fear them. We reserve fear and honor to our God because he is sovereign. And even though Deborah assures us, assures Barak that he will defeat Sisera, he insists that Deborah goes with him. And this comes with a price. Because of Barak's fear and hesitation, Deborah prophesies in verse 9 saying, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we learn later how this prophecy is fulfilled. But anyways, Barak gathers 10,000 men and they head to Mount Tabor. And Sisera receives intel on the movement of the Israelites and he prepares his chariots for battle. And what's interesting is in verse 11, we get this random uh, bit of information. You can read in verse 11, uh, it says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites. The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananam, which is near Kadesh. So keep this in mind. We'll get to it later, but this is a little bit of foreshadowing. It seems random, but it plays a huge part. Heber, a Kenite, has set up his tent near the battle. But in verse 14, Deborah goes to Barak and she says, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? How comforting this should sound to the ears of Barak. The enemy is mighty, but the mighty God of Israel assures his people of victory. And as we should expect, the Lord keeps his promises. We read in verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Herosheth Haggaim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. The text says the Lord routed Sisera. The victory isn't even in question. The Lord routed them. It's an overwhelming, crushing, destroying defeat. Sisera may have been mighty, a mighty enemy to Barak, but to God, to, to the mighty God of Israel, he is nothing. It is easy for him to defeat, uh, to defeat Sisera. And we learn in chapter 5 just how the Lord brought this victory upon uh, Sisera for the people of God. In verse 4 of chapter 5, we read, Lord, when you went out from Sarah, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The God of heaven and earth brought a, brought a flash flood upon uh, Sisera and his armies and the waters rendered the chariots useless as they could not move through the, the mud. And they were left to be defeated by Barak's army. But let us not miss the weight of verse 14, the question that Deborah asked Barak. She says, does not the Lord go out before you? Does not the Lord go out before you? 
Do you know this truth? When it comes to advancing God's, God's kingdom here on earth, do you know that the Lord goes out before you? When you share the gospel with unbelieving friends, family, or co-workers, do you know that the Lord goes out before you? When you seek to disciple others through awkward and difficult conversations, do you know that the Lord goes out, goes out before you? When you sacrificially give of your time and your, time, your money and your skills, do you know that the Lord goes out before you? And when you confess your sins to others, do you know that the Lord goes out before you? He's sovereign. He's routed our enemy. He has promised good from obedience to him and his word. He sovereignly goes before us to soften the hearts of those that we share the gospel with. He sovereignly goes before us to sanctify us through sacrificially giving, through conversations and through confession. He goes before us. He goes out before you. The Lord calls us to the work of advancing His kingdom by the proclamation of His gospel, by discipleship, and by giving to the Lord. It's hard work. It's difficult. We face many, many challenges that will be out of our control, but we have a sovereign God who is working through us. We have a mighty God that will assure us in, a, in our doubts. Do we know that the Lord goes out before us? In Acts 18, we read uh, Paul's in Corinth and he receives a vision from the Lord and he hears the Lord and he says, the Lord says to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city for the and may for I have many in this city who are my people. May we go on speaking and not being silent. May we know that the Lord is with us and he goes before us. And may we too believe that the Lord has many in this city. The interesting, interesting things about Christ's kingdom is that it is not advanced by soldiers on chariots of irons armed with swords and spears. No, Christ's kingdom is advanced by soldiers armed with words of peace and eternal life. Now let's look at the third point, the head-crushing hero. Caesar's army has been defeated, and all his men are dead, but he flees. He makes a run for it. So let's read verses 17 through 21. But Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. So Caesarea flees, and he comes to this tent 
of Jael. And remember, Jael is the wife of Heber. So we come back to verse 11 where Heber uh, was mentioned. This text tells us that Heber was at peace with Jabin, the king of Canaan and the king of Caesarea. So Caesarea thinks, wow, I've just got out of uh, this. My, my army has been destroyed and I'm fleeing and I come to my ally. What? This is fantastic. This is awesome. I'm, I'm safe. And Jael affirms this thought for Caesarea and she tells him not to be afraid. She covers him up with a rug. She shows him tremendous hospitality. He asks for water. She gives him milk. But she does all this so she can drive a tent peg through his skull. This imagery, imagery is graphic and it leaves no room for uh, imagination. But it's clear. The enemy is dead. The enemy is defeated. Jael crushes the head of the enemy of God's people. This is the climax of the story, but it takes us back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. After the fall, God promises to Satan. He says, I will send a head-crushing hero that will crush the head of Satan. And we know this hero as Jesus. What's interesting is that Jael crushes the head of the enemy by driving a nail through his temple. But Jesus, how does he crush the head of our enemy? He has nails driven through his own hands and feet. We read in verse 22 that Barak comes and he searches for Sisera and he finds Jael standing outside of the tent and she says, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And when I read this, I couldn't help but be reminded of the empty tomb. Remember from Mark chapter 16, the women return to the tomb after Jesus has been buried there. And they are surprised to find the stone rolled away. And they find a young man dressed in white. And what does he say to them? He says, the man whom you are seeking is not here. We have our own head crushing hero. Jesus crushes the head of Satan by his own death and resurrection. Through this, all our mighty enemies will fall. We can have confidence in this. This is an already not yet reality. It has already been assured to us and obtained to, for us by Christ. And it will be brought to its final completion when Christ returns. Our perfect and righteous judge who will bring eternal peace through his perfect and righteous judgments. Through Christ and His Spirit dwelling in us, we can be strengthened not to succumb to the temptations of this world. The temptations are our flesh and the temptations of Satan because to be loved and known by Jesus is far more valuable and precious than anything this world, our flesh, or Satan can offer. And it's significant that we focus on who killed Sisera. It's Jael, a woman. And this is a significant theme in these chapters. It is the women that are faithful and strong in these chapters. Let's reflect about how we got here. Deborah goes to Barak and tells Barak, God has guaranteed your victory over these people. Gather up some men and go defeat them. And Barak's afraid. And he says, I'm not going unless you go, Deborah. Barak is afraid and assists that Deborah, their prophetess, and their judge go with him. But this is not how it's supposed to happen. This is akin to 
Uh, Ellie and I laying in bed at night and oftentimes we hear a noise in the basements. 99% of the time it's the cat. But every time Ellie says, will you go check on that? Could you imagine if I said, only if you come with me. <laughs> this is not how it's supposed to be. Do you remember what Deborah says back to Barak when he responds this way? She agrees to go with Barak, but she says because of Barak's response, he will not be the one to defeat Sisera. The defeat will belong to a woman. And then we come to Jael. It should have been Barak that kills Sisera. It should have been him. However, because of his lack of courage and leadership, God strengthens a non-Israelite woman to complete the task of defeating the enemy and fulfilling Deborah's prophecy that Sisera would fall in the hands of a woman. This is significant, especially in this, these times. It would have been unheard of for a woman to go into battle and to carry out the task such as assassinating the commander of the enemy's army. And this is an indictment and a significant failure on the men at these times. But praise God for the faithfulness of Deborah and Jael. In fact, Deborah sings of praise to Jael and she calls her the most blessed of women. And I think this is a challenge for us men at Trinity. Let this not be the chase of our church. That the weight of ministry falls solely on the shoulders of our women. Or the weight of raising our children in the Lord falls solely on our wives. And to the women of Trinity, you have significant and value and responsibility in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ here in this church. Look at the examples of Deborah and Jael and the examples of Mary Magdalene and the women at the tomb. God has and continues to use women in this spiritual warfare. And last point, a song of victory. Our enemy has been defeated. Christ has defeated Satan. Do we believe this? If we do, we have much to sing about. And so did Deborah after Sisera and Jabin were defeated. It's a joyful time in Israel. The 20 years of oppression has ended. And Deborah's excited for this victory. We read in chapter 5, 1 through 5, we read, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Sarah, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even after Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Deborah's ecstatic. She praises God and attributes her, their victory to God and God alone. And even as Deborah praises the unity of those who participate in the battle, she blesses the Lord for his role in raising up and strengthening Israel's people. She praises the leaders for taking the lead, and she praises the people for offering themselves willingly. She has much to sing about. The oppression is over. Peace is upon their people. The enemy is defeated. Don't we have much to sing about as well? 
We were in spiritual bondage ourselves. We were enslaved to sin and Satan, and Christ has set us free. Do we, like Deborah, sing as a freed people? You know, Christ's people, we are a singing people. Not because we are particularly talented at singing. I know, I hear myself singing. We are not a particularly talented group of singers. No, we sing because we have much to sing about. And Deborah continues in verse 12 through 8 by praising Barak for his role. What forgiveness there. Let's not overlook that. She praises Barak. He failed. Uh, he, he was fearful, but he did go to war. He, there was hesitation, but he did go to war. He did lead his men. What forgiveness and restoration is brought to Barak. But she praises Barak for his role, and she praises the tribe of Israel that participated and helped bring about the victory. She mentions specifically Ephraim and Benjamin, Mekir, Zebulun, Essachar, and Naphtali. She praises all the, these tribes of Israel because of their joint effort in defeating Sisera. You know, if you've been listening to the news and listening to uh, all, the, all the things that are happening in Ukraine, you hear one after another of uh, the, the president of Ukraine stepping up and uh, entering the battle. You hear about a, a former boxer that's a millionaire, has no reason. I mean, he could be safe, but he goes back to Ukraine to fight. It's a joint effort. The, the people of Ukraine have uh, showed tremendous courage in the fight. And the same, too, here with Ephraim and Benjamin and Makir and Zebulun, Issachar and Nephtali. They, they are praised for their participation. But also in these verses, she rebukes those that did not participate. She rebukes Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher because all are observed by Deborah to be to willingly not participate when they had an opportunity to aid. The Lord expects his people to participate in the advancement of his kingdom. If you are a Christian here today, you are called to participate in the work of building his kingdom. You are called to proclaim the gospel to the lost and what a joy it is that God allows us to participate in this. You know, he could have defeated Sisera and Jabin uh, by just snapping his fingers. You know, he could have wiped them out. But he, he invites his people to participate in that, in that battle. This is a spiritual warfare, and God strengthens us for this work. This work. And in fact, we are the only means by which God will do this. The only way that God will advance his kingdom here on earth is through Christians opening their mouths and sharing the good news of Christ and him crucified. That you can be reconciled through the blood of Jesus. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. And in Romans 10 we read, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, who, him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Again, I ask, 
What is your role in the advancement of the kingdom of God? Are you active? Are you an active participant? Praise God. Keep working for the advancement of the kingdom. Keep pressing on and be encouraged that our sovereign God will strengthen you and keep you and preserve you for this task. Are you a non-participant? Know this, there is no neutrality in this divine warfare. All Christians are called to participate. And God will equip you for this task. Identify one person that you can share the gospel with and begin praying for that person. And ask God to strengthen you to proclaim the gospel to that person. Show hospitality to the person. I think there's a little bit of application here that Jael showed such hospitality to Caesarea that he laid down all of his arms. And unfortunately, that led to his death. But as we... Uh, show hospitality to others it softens their heart to the gospel so that we can share with them how they can be reconciled to God this is a noble task that we're called to participate in it will lead to joy do not be inactive in this work lastly are you an enemy to the advancement of the kingdom of God Maybe you don't know that you're an enemy, but Paul describes the life of Christians before conversion as a life of enmity with God. And we can see that in Romans 5 or Colossians 1. And listen to the final words of Deborah's song in Judges 5. In verse 31 we read, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. Enmity with God will lead to your enemies perishing martin luther describes the the describes christ crushing the serpent's head as not only defeating satan but defeating all the enemies of god so i plead with you if you are at odds with god if you are not are you if you are at odds with god and the advancement of his kingdom i plead with you put your faith and trust in christ Turn from your sin and rebellion against God and run to the head-crushing hero and Savior that is Jesus. Because if you are trusting in Jesus, you are a friend of Jesus. And we read in that same verse 31, But your friends be like the Son as He resides in His might. Be a friend of Jesus and you will have peace and you will have rest in Him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we praise you that you have called us from enmity into friendship. We praise you that you have defeated our mighty enemies through the death and resurrection of your holy son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would increase our faith in Jesus, our Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts by your spirit to believe believe in these truths, and that we would be active participants in the advancement of your kingdom. Equip us, strengthen us, God, for the battle. Help us to uh, advance your kingdom here in Lebanon through your gospel. And God, we pray for those that are still at enmity with you. We pray that they too would become friends of Christ, that you would soften their hearts to your gospel, and that they would become participants in this mission, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.